All right, good morning, guys. Oh, wow, that was weak. Good morning, guys. Much better. My name is Steve. I am the lead pastor here. And uh, we are going to be continuing this morning, in fact, concluding our time in Hebrews. We spent the last three weeks. Uh, this will be our fourth. But, but before we jump in, I want to let you know about some things that are coming up. Next weekend, uh, next Sunday, we're going to be having a Safe Families Sunday. Safe Families is a ministry that we are, we've partnered with and are part of. Um, Safe Families is a, a ministry that, that comes alongside families in need and preemptively provides um, intercession and, and, and child care for them um, before foster care kicks in. Uh, it, is, it is a way for the church to come alongside families so that, um, honestly, the state doesn't have to and doesn't have to be involved. Uh, we have a thriving community of people in our, in our church that um, are, are part of foster care and, say, families, adoption, um, in, in all kinds of ways. We have people that take placements. Uh, we have other people that support people who take placements, right? Pra- offering both, both practical and, and spiritual support for them. And, and so next Sunday, we're going to be kind of highlighting what's going on with that and encouraging you to be involved. Um, some of you may be led to actually be Safe Families Homes. Some of you may be led to uh, be support families, um, praying for and maybe providing meals or, or other practical support for families who take placements. Um, hopefully all of us will be led to pray um, and, and be part of a, a, this community effort to be a blessing to our community. So that's next Sunday. Um, Ryan Mobley, a friend of mine who is the regional director for Safe Families, will be coming in and, and actually opening the word uh, for us next Sunday, and, and it's going to be um, uh, really encouraging. So I encourage you to come back next, next week for that. Uh, February 18th, the Sunday after that, we're going to be beginning our study in the book of James. Um, James is a profoundly practical New Testament book, uh, and we're going to be digging into it uh, late winter and, and through the spring. Um, I think it's going to be a huge blessing to our community. I think it's going to really uh, have a profound impact um, on our church. And, and one of the ways that we're trying to maximize this study is we are producing these study books. Um, we produced these. We created these. And they are designed to help you dig into the Word and dig into community uh, instead of just showing up for sermons on Sunday. And so it, it allows you to dig into the Word before the Sunday sermon, take notes during, and then uh, it moves you into community discussions after. Um, we have a bunch of these books out there on the table, uh, so go ahead and grab one today if you want to. There'll be more next week. That's just the first installment, um, and we're going to have these available. To help offset the cost of the printing of these, we are asking um, if you're able to give uh, a $6 donation. Um, if you want to give more to help offset um, folks who can't afford it, feel free. Here's the thing. If you want one, you don't have the 6 bucks, take it. We want the book in your hand. We want to equip you to study the Word of God. We really believe that as you engage this, it's going to increase your experience of grace. It's going to increase the blessing that you experience as a result of what God has given us in the Word and, and in His Son, okay? So it's really important to us that you have one of these and that you engage it with us, okay? So um, if, if, if in any way the finances are, are whatever, just grab one, right? Nobody's watching, um, and so that's totally cool with us, okay? So um, those are in the lobby, we also have bookmarks out there. Um, grab one of those as well. Those are just designed to help you as you're reading, to remind you of, of important questions that will help you engage the Scripture. Uh, next week, after service, there will be an event called Pizza with the Pastor. It's pretty self-explanatory. You get to eat pizza, and you get to do it with, with me. Yay. Um, but, but here's the thing. It's really, as we get bigger, we, f- we have to find ways to get smaller. 
right? That's always the way it works. And as we get bigger, we're looking for ways to make sure that um, you have personal connections with the leaders in the church, me as well as the other elders in the church, the other pastors. And so um, uh, show on up, okay? And, and this is for everybody. Uh, if you have questions about the sermon series, if you have questions about scripture, if you have questions about how the scripture applies to areas of culture, if you have questions about astrophysics, you can show up and ask all the questions you want, and I'll talk, I can't guarantee it's going to be helpful, um, but we will have a dialogue, okay, and, and it will allow us to just meet, you know what I'm saying? And, 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 and seriously, um, even if you've been here since the founding of the church, if there's stuff about the recent sermon series or whatever you want to talk about, it's open game. It actually helps me if you show up with questions, and, and, uh, and I think it just makes it enjoyable. So that's next Sunday after the service. You can plan uh, to come to that. Um, if you are new here, uh, we have a thing called Connect Group that starts in a couple weeks. Connect Group is a three-week class that will equip you to connect with other new people at the church, uh, as well as some of our leaders. It will be covering the history and some of the distinctive pieces of our philosophy of ministry, so you know who we are as a church. Uh, it is our way of just trying to give you an introduction to who we are and what we're about, as well as giving you the ability, again, in a smaller setting, just to meet some people, ask some questions, hang out, um, and, and kind of get more relaxed and comfortable. Um, and so that begins in, in a couple weeks. Um, and, and if you want any more information about any of this, Connection Point is your place to go. It is the table out in the lobby. It is our hub of information. Um, and so if you want to get any, any more information about the ministry of the church or about any of these activities or anything else, just visit that table. We have people there that will be more than happy to assist you. Grab your Bibles. Uh, we're going over to Hebrews chapter 11 this morning. This is our third week in um, the book of of he, our fourth week in the book of Hebrews, I've, as you guys know, I mean, this is just um, a letter that has a lot of meaning to me. Uh, we launched the church seven years ago, preaching through the book of Hebrews. I became a believer, I, mean, I don't even know how many years ago, um, 32 years ago, uh, one night reading the book of Hebrews. Um, I love this book, and um, I've picked out four of, I mean, it's hard to pick my favorite passages out of this book, but I've picked four that I consider some of my favorite passages. And so Hebrews 10 uh, ranks right up there. Um, and, and so here's the thing. Hebrews is awesome. It, 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 the author of Hebrews makes the argument, Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Jesus is better than whatever you're tempted to go back to. Jesus is better than whatever you think is going to meet your needs. Jesus is better. And he was talking to first century Jewish believers, um, and he was saying Jesus is better than, than your religion, than your old covenant um, experiences from, from, from now you're facing persecution and isolation and, 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 and feeling you know, kind of put out and, and, and you're having to pay a price for your faith, but Jesus is still better than what you're tempted to go back to. And man, that message is just as relevant to us today. And so it begins with Jesus is better, and then he goes into a warning. You're tempted to go back. Don't do it. Don't do it. And, and then mixed in are these lettuce statements. And I, I mean, let us, not lettuce, right? We're not eating. It's, it's let us. And, and let us statements are important when you see them in the book of Hebrews because they're commands that are honestly invitations. Every time he says let us, it is a command, but it is an invitation. It is a command that you're going to want to follow if you really understand um, what the author is talking about. We have three of those in our passage today, and we're going to spend some time unpacking them. So let's take a look at Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 24. I'm going to read out loud. You can follow along, starting in verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place 
places by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more, as you see the day drawing near. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, guys, um, we're going to do something a little bit different um, in, in this sermon. Uh, I'm going to put the text up on the screen behind me, and, um, and I'm going to mark it up um, on my little thing up here. Um, and the reason I'm doing this is, is, is we're, we're encouraging you and wanting to equip you to do what's called inductive Bible study. So as we move into the book of James, each week we actually have the text of the sermon printed in the book. And I want you to read it, and I want you to write on it. Okay, and, and I would love for you to write in your Bibles. It is okay to write in your Bibles. God is honored by, by, your, by your highlights and your underlines and even your doodles. Okay, whatever helps you engage the Word of God is good. Um, and, and so it's all, inductive Bible study is all about observation. Because we have a way, you ever notice like when you see something a thousand times, you stop seeing it, right? You walk right by it and you think you already know what you need to see. Inductive Bible study is a way of slowing down so you can see. It's a way of observing the text, okay? So you're looking for things like words that are repeated or phrases that are connected, like here's this happened, therefore this happened. Okay, what's the connection? What is, what is the therefore, therefore, right? All of those simple questions that we forget to ask when we're flying through and we assume we already know what it's talking about. And so you're going to highlight and you're going to uh, write things and ask questions and, and pray, Right? Because it's the Spirit of God that ultimately needs to give you the ability to see what you're not seeing. Here's the thing. The Word of God is like a field of treasure. Okay? And, and, and when you walk across, some of the treasures are right on the surface. And you can just pick them up as you walk across. Right? And, and some of you, that, that's kind of where you've been. You just kind of, if you engage the Word of God, you just kind of read it. You skim over it. If there's something there that's really good, you grab it. You come on Sunday mornings and you hope that I'm going to dig something up good for you to encourage you or, or make you think or challenge you in some ways. And there's nothing wrong with that. I want to equip you to do some digging on your own because the greatest treasures are going to come from your own digging. The greatest treasures are going to come when you grab the Word of God, you start digging in, you start asking questions, and the Spirit opens your heart and not just the Word, right? It's not just about us opening our Bibles, it's about the Bibles opening us. And, and it's in engaging and digging in that the Word often digs into us. And, and the Spirit shows us things that will deeply encourage us or, or profoundly challenge us. And so we want, we want to equip you to dig in. And so on today's sermon, really, I'm just going to kind of model um, how I engage the text. As I teach through it, I'm going to show you this is what my Bible will end up looking like and, and already looks like um, when I highlight things, when I underline things, when I draw lines. And, and it's really just to kind of give you permission to, to make a mess. Um, but it's helpful because it, it helps you see things uh, that often you wouldn't see. So, so there we go. We're going to have a little bit of fun with that. All right, so in our text this morning, uh, Barnabas who we know wrote the book of Hebrews, because I think so, um, and that's the only reason. Um, but whoever wrote it, I think it was Barnabas, is going to remind us of the central argument of Hebrews. Jesus is better. 
Jesus is better than, than whatever you want to go back to, whether it's religious performance or, or, or secular uh, per, pursuit of glory or, or a promotion or a pursuit of pleasure. Man, Jesus is just better. Jesus is better than those other things you're looking to, to, to give you fulfillment or give you joy or to make you feel worthwhile or to give you security. Jesus is better. That's the foundational argument, right? And so here's his thrust. Jesus is better. So you guys, let's engage this for real. Let's do this for real. Let's stop going through the motions. Let's stop being religious because that really is the pattern we fall into, right? We just start going through the motions. We just start, and I know in my own heart I do that. Like, I'll just start showing up. I'm not, it's not that I'm doing anything wrong. It's just that I've stopped kind of doing it for real, right? It's like, like a friendship or a marriage that grows stale when you're used to seeing someone over and over and over again. And, and, and you start assuming who they are instead of seeing who they are. And, and, and pretty soon the, the warmth and the intimacy and the delight and the wonder of the relationship just kind of goes away. And that's how often we live our life with God, right? Because we're not doing it for real. We're not engaging for real. We're going through the motions as if it were real. We're pretending like it's real, but it's not. And, and his argument in this text is, man, let's make this real. So you guys, that's where we're going this morning because I believe this text, if we live this out, if we, if we don't learn anything else in 2018, if we live this text out in 2018, we will be a radical community in a world that needs a radical community. We will be a community that is transformed and we're going to be people who, who crave that transformation, okay? So we're going to dig in. Uh, first thing I'm going to do when I come to a text like this is I'm often looking for words that are repeated because authors will repeat words that they want emphasized or their, their, their tie-ins and links. And so one of the first things we notice is um, there are a couple uh, key words right here, right? Since. Those are important because they tie ideas together. There are two since statements, uh, verse 19 and verse 21. And here's the thing. He's going to say, since these things are true, these other things are the outgrowth. So that means these things are our motivators, okay? And then following that up, there are going to be three let us statements. If I can find it. There it is, hidden. Okay? So three let us statements that are the outgrowth. Here are the motivators. Here's how they out work out in your life. So let's unpack this a little bit. The first since is found in verse 19. Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way that he opened up through the curtain, that is his flesh. Since we have confidence to enter the holy places. For the first century readers, this would have been a profound thought, one that was unthinkable. Because in the Old Testament, holy places were dangerous places. In the Old Testament, holy places were dangerous places because people are unholy, we're unholy. And we know that. We know that. Man, we don't even live up to our own standards, let alone God's. We disappoint ourselves and our, our rules are nothing like God's, right? We know that we don't measure up. We know that we're not holy. And in the Old Testament, it's repeated over and over and over again that holy places are dangerous places for people that aren't holy. We're like dry kindling entering the presence of a raging fire of holiness and it will consume us and destroy us. Right? When, when God appeared on the top of Mount Sinai to give the law, right, he appeared in thunder and lightning and, and earthquake and, and, and the command came down. Moses will come up. Everyone else stay away. Nobody touch the mountain. Man nor woman nor beast touch the mountain or they die. Holy places are dangerous places. When the temple was laid out, it was laid out in such a way that it was like this. Right? Come near but stay away. Come near but stay away. There were courtyards all the way around the temple. 
There was the courtyard of the Gentiles. If you were a Gentile, that's as close as you could get. There was a courtyard of the Jews. If you were a Jew, that's as close as you could get. There was a courtyard for the Levitical priests, um, the people that were in the tribe of Levi that were serving in the temple. They could go into to the outer court of the temple itself and into the first room of the temple known as the holy place. And then there was one room that only the high priest could enter. The high priest was, was appointed each year, and, and the high priest would, on the Day of Atonement, the high and holy day, take the sacrifice that was offered for the entire nation into the Holy of Holies, right next to the actual Ark of the Covenant, and he would sprinkle it with blood. And when he entered, he would, they would put a rope around his ankle in case the bells on the end of his garment stopped ringing and he was dead because nobody else could go in to get him or they would be struck dead as well. They would actually have to pull him out, right? Holy places are dangerous places. When you're unholy, holiness is dangerous. It will consume you. We have confidence to draw near. This is profound in its implications. And, and the reason, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, to actually come into the very presence of God, where does this come from? By the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way. Right? So we know that he's speaking about the sacrifice of Christ. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. He lived the life we should have lived. He died the death we deserved to die. He was our substitute in judgment so we could become his partner in blessing. Jesus was judged for my sin. He, he took the full brunt of my, my, the weight of my guilt, died in my place, and then rose again on the third day. Right? That's the message of the gospel, and it's good news. And it opened up for me a new and living way. Now, this word new... Uh, is an interesting word in the Greek. It literally means fresh. <laughs> uh, it's a compound word that means um, newly or freshly slain. And it was, it was used to describe meat that came from a fresh sacrifice as opposed to meat that had been cured um, or, or, or salted or, or preserved in some way. It was fresh. So literally it says he made a, a freshly slain and living way which obviously has profound implications when we're talking about the sacrifice of Christ, right? What this means is that, is that unlike the, the animal sacrifices, where in the Old Testament, the, the Jews had to bring animal sacrifices, they had to offer them through their priest, their priest would take them, and, and, and they had to keep doing it over and over and over again because the animal sacrifices couldn't take away um, the, the guilt of sin nor actually take away the, the weight of their conscience. And so they had to do it over and over and over and over and over. And those were just foreshadowing. Jesus is the freshly slain and living way. There's no expiration date on the sacrifice of Christ. It never loses its potency. You can never use it too much, right? You can never reach the end of it. You can never wait too long and have it all of a sudden be expired. When we run to this way, it is a freshly slain and living way because He is the crucified and risen Savior. The freshly slain and living way. The sacrifice of Jesus never grows old. And, and this way was made through the curtain of his flesh, right? The curtain of his flesh, which the author tells us, uh, the curtain here is actually talking about the flesh. Now, first century readers would have known what this was talking about. We're like, why in the world are we talking about curtains? That's weird. Uh, so in the temple, there was a big, thick curtain that separated the, the holy place from the holy of holies. And, and nobody went past that curtain except the high priest and him only once a year. It was a, a, holy places are dangerous places. 
Nobody went past that curtain. When Jesus died on the cross, the writers of the gospel tells us that that curtain was actually torn in two from top to bottom. It was God basically in a, in a very powerful, physical, symbolic form saying, the way to me has now been opened and it's not this way anymore. This isn't how you approach me. There's been a better curtain, a true and, and better curtain that has been torn open and that was the body of Christ. In his sacrifice, he opened up a new way into the Holy of Holies, into the very presence of God. We approach God not through some temple, not through religious behavior, not by going to church, not by doing good things. We approach God through Christ. Christ is the new and living way. He is the good news. See, the gospel is not good advice on how to do better. The gospel is not good advice on how to be happier, do better, be better in your finances, have a happier marriage. Those things are all byproducts. The gospel is not a message of good advice. It is a message of good news. In fact, literally, that's what gospel means, good news. It is the proclamation that Christ himself has done for us what we couldn't do and won for us what we couldn't win. That through the, the sacrifice of Christ, we have a new, a freshly slain and living way into the holy place, into the very presence of God. This is the first motivator. Since this is true. Since this is true. The second motivator is in verse 21, right? Where it says, since we have a great priest over the house of God. Now remember, in the Old Testament, uh, the priests were the inter intercessories between the Jewish people and God. And, and, and people would bring their sacrifices to the priests. The priests would then offer those sacrifices for the people. The challenge was the priests had to first offer sacrifices for themselves because they were broken and sinful people. Holy places were dangerous places to them too, right? And so they would make sacrifices for the people. They would intercede for the people, but it could never completely, finally, and forever cleanse their conscience or remove their guilt, right? We have a great high priest, we have a high priest who boldly enters holy places because he belongs there. We have a great high priest who, who walks boldly into the very presence of God because he himself is one in nature with the person of God, right? Jesus, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, one what, three who's, weirdness, craziness, but he belongs. <laughs> what a perfect intercessory one who perfectly understands what it means to be human and perfectly belongs in the presence of God because he himself is the embodiment of the perfection, the holiness, and the completion of God. He boldly belongs where he belongs, and he invites us in. He intercedes and brings us with him. What's beautiful about this is that Jesus understands our weakness. He was made man, and he understands the frailty of man. He lived a life, and in that life, he, he, he learned what it meant to grow tired, right? He, he, he learned what it meant to, to, to feel hangry, right? He, he, he understood the sorrow of betrayal and the difficulty of loneliness. He understood the, the hardness of having his own desires, and yet God's overruling his, right? When he is wrestling in the garden, not my will but yours be done, right? That's a man who is racked with, with, man, God, your mission for me is greater than what I desire for myself, and I will submit. He understands your difficulties. He understands your weaknesses, and he meets you where you are. And he will take you where you can never get yourself, but it's where you want to be. He's the perfect, great priest. 
sense. We have this, this new and living way, this freshly slain and, and living way. And since we have this great high priest who will take us through a way we could never make for ourselves. That's a lot of motivation right there. That's good news. God loves us in spite of us. God loves us where we are, but he won't leave us where we are. God is so determined to have his glory in us that he paid the price to forgive our guilt and remove our shame so that we could take part in his glory. You are loved more profoundly than you understand. And God has paid a higher price in order to move back into relationship with you than you will ever understand. That is high motivation. Since these things are true, there are three things that grow out of this, three let us statements that flow out of this, that are commands that are actually invitations. The first is in verse 22. Since, we ha- since these things are true, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us draw near. Can we just admit something up front? This is often hard for us to do. It shouldn't be as believers in Christ, but it is. I know for myself that it's a whole lot easier for me to draw near to my escapes, to the way I release pressure, to the latest episode of the Black Mirror, to, to whatever is else is cool on Netflix, right? I have great ways of distracting myself. They're not even necessarily bad, right? I've got bad ways too. We all do. Um, but those things tend to be really easy to draw near to, right? In some ways, it's kind of like water running downhill. You have to fight not to run to those things. Drawing near to God takes effort, right? And yet, what an incredible invitation. Because we have this new and living, this freshly slain and living way opened up to us into the very presence of God in the holy place, draw near to the God who loves you. Draw near to the God who delights in you. Draw near to the infinite goodness of God who seeks to give you the infinite blessing of his presence. What kind of idiot resists that command? Me. Because there is something in me has a really hard time going in that direction. That's why I need to remind myself of this invitation. That's why I need to be reminded that that there is a reason to do it. There is a great invitation in front of me that I am robbing myself of joy when I run to things that simply numb me and distract me. Instead, I am told to draw near. And it says draw near with a true heart. True is an interesting word. And in this case, the word literally means authentic. In other words, draw near to God in honesty. Who you are, where you are. Don't try to fix yourself first. Don't try to clean yourself up. Don't, don't, don't put your best image forward. Don't, don't, well, this is who, you know, I can't come to God with these desires. These are bad desires. I've got to hide these desires and talk about these desires. These are, the, these are the, God, the desires God would like to hear about, right? That's not true. That's not authentic. When you're approaching God with this false front, you're actually creating a barrier between you and God. You're not really drawing near at all, right? You're you're drawing near in your behavior, but you are not drawing near in your heart. You need to draw near with authenticity, right? Come as you are. 
with your questions, with your struggles, with your anger, with your resentment, with your joy, with your come, like draw near with a true heart, an authentic heart, but do it in full assurance of faith. Do it in full assurance of faith. What does that mean to do it in full assurance of faith? It means that we're fully assured that God is who He says He is and He's done what He said He's done, that the two since statements are true. I'm going to draw near, authentic in who I am, with the reality of my brokenness, my questions, my confusion, but I'm going to do it in the full assurance that I'm being fully accepted as I do. That God's not waiting for me to come with the magic words or the magic attitude. That God's not waiting for me to clean myself up or fix myself. I am coming in the full assurance of faith that I am welcome in the presence of God because Jesus is my great priest. That he has removed my guilt, removed my shame, covered me with his righteousness. And I can actually come into the presence of God as I am and be loved and welcomed. In drawing near in this way, it allows me to experience the love of God. You guys, do you ever, when you fail, feel a reluctance to come into the presence of God? Like, like, like you do the dumb thing that you've done a thousand times before and you've promised yourself you would never do it again and then you go do it again. And you're like, ah. So what do you do? You kind of beat yourself up for a little while before you draw near to God. You're like, I'm such an idiot. I'm so stupid. I'm such a failure. I'm such a sinner. I can't even believe that I'm I'm just this and I'm just that. And and we're taking the voice of condemnation and we are beating ourselves up with it. We are, are in a sense, climbing to the closet and, and beating ourselves up so that we can feel worthy to receive grace because it's really hard to approach God when we don't feel like we deserve grace, which is ironic and counter to faith. Because the whole point of grace is you don't deserve it. The whole point of grace is you don't earn it. When we give the voice in our heads to that condemnation, we are in fact strengthening our disbelief. We need to draw near in the full assurance of faith that we are accepted not because of our performance but because of His. We are loved not because we're good but because He is on our behalf. We are brought in because there is a freshly slain and living way into the very presence of God. That has nothing to do with my behavior. That I didn't earn and I can't lose because he did it for me. I need to draw near with a true and authentic heart and I need to do it with full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience in our bodies washed with pure water. All right, that's kind of weird. Um, This would make more sense to a first century believer because the references are actually the things that would take place in the temple. When when the priests were coming in, there were rituals in which they would be sprinkled with with water or sometimes with blood. There were other times you would go to the laver and and, and physically wash. They were ceremonial washings to enter into the presence of God. What the author is saying is what they used to do in rituals, God has now done for us in Christ. We have our hearts sprinkled clean, not because we are good, but because he has been good on our behalf, because we've been forgiven by the price that he has paid. We have our bodies washed, which is an indication of change because of the work of Christ. All right, so you guys catch this. When we resist drawing near to the presence of God, because we're beating ourselves up, because we feel like we need to fix ourselves in some way, because we've got to atone, you know, we've got to suffer a little bit before we approach God, what we're actually doing is cutting ourselves off from the very power of change, because the only thing that will change us is love. When we draw near to God in all of our brokenness, when we draw near to God with all of our sin, when we draw near to God with all of our failure, when we draw near with an authentic heart, broken, but in full assurance of faith that I am loved in spite of myself, I'm drawing near to love. 
And it is love that sets me free. It cleanses my conscience and it changes who I am. It doesn't just rearrange the furniture of my behavior. It actually transforms the very core of my being because love changes me. And in changing me, it changes my behavior. That's how I'm set free. That's how I become more like Christ. Not my performance for him, but my simply responding to him, being loved. Draw near. Draw near. So the first let us, as we look back on our guilt, as we look back on our failures, as we look back on our shame, as we look back on the ways we've let ourselves down, we are to draw near. We are to draw near. The second let us is in verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let us draw near and we look back. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope as we look forward. Have you ever gotten so discouraged when you look at the world around you? You're like, man, this mess can never be fixed. You look at the political landscape and you're like, there's nobody. There's not one of those people that have any idea how to fix any of this. Right? You ever get so frustrated with, with, with the geopolitical threats of nuclear war, of invasion of countries, of, of people competing, and you're looking at it and you're thinking, this is hopeless. The best things we build already have the seeds of our own destruction sown in them. Our best efforts create things that ultimately betray our best intentions over. And that's the story of human history. You ever get to a place where you just look around at the world and you're like, this is freaking hopeless. You ever look at yourself and, and, and get just to this place where you're like, I'm so sick of me. I'm, I've been struggling with this same thing for so long. And I can't get rid of it. I'm, I, I let myself down. I can't stand myself when I see myself in, in this kind of, how can God stand me? Do you ever get to that place where you're looking around and you're so discouraged by what you see around you or what you see in you and you're like, man, it's just, it's impossible. I can't change this. We can't fix this. It's just one mess created by another mess. So if that's where you are, I want you to be comforted. You're right. What this means is that you're actually starting to see clearly. And in fact, it's worse because the, war, the problem is worse than you think it is. Right? It's actually worse. It's actually more hopeless than you think it is. Because our best efforts always betray our best intentions, always. Look at human history. I don't care what your political platform is. I don't care what your favorite politician is. I don't care what your favorite agenda is. Whatever it is, even if you get your agenda, even if you get your politician, even if you get your laws, you will in the end betray your best intentions. What you create will actually betray what you hope it will create. Right? When the, American, when, when the colonists moved to America, the first two things they had to build, a cemetery and a prison, because they brought their own betrayal with them. So, the problem is worse than you think it is, but I want to challenge you. Some of you have allowed that to influence your heart to cynicism, to the point where you're just like, ah, it's hopeless. 
<laughs> it's all going to burn. What's the use? You get to a point where you give up. Like, I just can't change. I can't grow. I can't become someone other than who I am. And so you just give in. I, I will always be this. I will always be abandoned here. I will always be in prison here. Or you give up on the world. You're like, this place is so jacked. It's always going to be like this. It's never going to. And, and you give into this cynicism. And listen to me, your cynicism is a lack of faith. Your cynicism is, is an expression of your unbelief. We are to hold fast to the confession of our hope. Hope is the future anticipation of good. Hope is recognizing that the Savior who came to be my Savior is going to return to be my hero. That the same one who broke out of death is going to break out again. And this time, instead of simply recreating his body, he's going to recreate mine and all of creation with it. We are to hold fast to our confession of hope. We have a freshly slain and living way back into the very presence of God. And this isn't just a promise of personal renewal. It is a promise of cosmic recreation. When we are tempted to turn back and grow tired and cynical or fearful, we are to hold fast our confession of hope. And there's nothing that will strengthen your hope like a message of love. Because your confidence isn't in you. The confidence isn't in your ability to change yourself or fix yourself or provide for yourself or protect yourself or get famous enough or good enough or be loved enough. The message of love comes in and says it's not dependent on you. Your hope isn't based on your weakness. Your hope isn't undercut by your own self-betrayal. Your hope is sure, not because of you, but because of him. Look at the end of the verse. For he who promised is faithful. Your hope isn't based on your ability to take hold of God. Your hope is based on His determination to take hold of you. Your hope isn't in your political platform or your favorite politician. Your hope is in Christ, the Savior of the world. He who promised is faithful. God is a God of his word, and his word never fails, and his promise never expires. God is a God of covenant faithfulness. Do you see why our cynicism is, in fact, a betrayal of trust in God? Do you see why our giving in, our cynicism, I can't change, I'll never be different, is, in fact, lying about the very nature and work of God? Let us hold fast our confession of hope, because we have a Savior who was raised from the dead, and if Jesus can rise from the dead, you can become the person God has created you to be. You can be made, remade into the image of Christ. You can be set free from your small intentions and your small hopes, from your little prison of behaviors, from your religious exercises and your pleasure pursuits. You can be changed. We have a gospel of hope. So looking back, we are to draw near. Looking forward, we are to hold fast to our hope. Looking around... We need to consider each other and the outworking of grace. This is the final in verse 24. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. This, this word stir up here is a really strong word in the Greek and other passages 
Um, it's actually translated as, as provoking to an intense conflict, right? Provoking to an intense conflict. In this case, it's being used on the opposite side. We are to consider how to provoke one another to love and good works. Now, the irony is um, we're really good at provoking. We're a culture of provoking. All you got to do is look at your social media feed. It is, it is one long provocation, right, because we love provoking people who provoke us. We love to have the perfect argument for the imaginary uh, or the perfect response to the imaginary argument with people who aren't even there. That's what your Facebook feed is, by the way. Right? You post that meme that's a perfect slam of all the people who stopped following you because you were annoying them already. All you're doing is speaking to a closet of people who already agree with you. And you're like, yeah, this is such a great argument, silencing this guy who should be here. They should be listening, right? They should be really provoked right now because this meme makes them feel stupid. We're really good at that. We love to provoke people that, that we feel like provoke us. We love to put down people that we feel put down by. We, we, we study how to do it. We really do study how to do it. We consider it carefully. That's what that word consider means. It means to study. We actually study how to do this, right? If you've ever had a sibling, you know how to study how to provoke. Nobody knows how to hit your buttons like your sibling, right? Growing up, man, you know how to provoke them, and they know how to provoke you. Right? Parents, your kids know how to provoke you in unique and diabolical ways because they study you. They love it. Right? To get your goat, whatever that means. I'll have to look that phrase up later. I just said it. And I, even, I, all right. I don't know what the origin is. I get fascinated by word origins. Why does get your goat mean annoy somebody? All right, that's totally a sidetrack. We study a long weekend. Uh, we study because we love to provoke. Well, here's the thing, you guys. Um, the world tells us that winning is destroying the enemy, having the perfect argument that silences them, having, having the, the ability to remove their, to put them down, to whatever. The gospel tells us that winning is love. Do you realize much of what we take pride in today will one day be our shame? Our ability to silence people we disagree with, our ability to put people down, our ability to silence and, and, and close people off, to, to have the arguments that nobody can answer that make us feel so strong and powerful and isolated in our intellectual superiority will be our shame. Because the gospel does not call us to win by defeating. The gospel calls us to win by loving. We are to study, to know how to provoke, not anger, but love. We are to study. Here's the thing, you guys. We should be looking around in our Christian community, not just to the people who are like us or the people who like us but everybody in our Christian community, the people who aren't like us, the people who really annoy you, the people who might even scare you a little bit if you were honest about it because they're so different from you, you don't understand them. People who voted for the opposite political candidate from you. People who have different political agendas from you. People who, who take strong stands on issues that are different from the issues you take strong stands on. People that, that, that 
I don't know, like the Patriots. <laughs> right? The one thing that's united America for the most part is, is everybody's kind of hoping for an Eagles win. At least that's what I seems like today, unless you're a Patriots fan, which we love you too, right? And so here's the thing. There are going to be people different from you. You have to study to know how to provoke them to love and good works. This requires us to be humble enough to listen. Without humility, we're going to make assumptions about people, and our assumptions about people are going to get in the way of us actually seeing people. We're going to see our assumptions about them instead of who they actually are. We're going to layer them with intents and meanings and thoughts that may or may not be theirs, but that's all we're going to see because in our arrogance, we think we already know everything we need to know. I don't need to ask you questions. I don't need to learn from you. I don't need to, I don't need to actually um, uh, come to a place of, of trying to see the world through your eyes because I already know, and I don't like it. Or maybe I do. Our assumptions get in the way of us actually seeing people. I know what I need to know, and what ends up happening is I miss what I need to see. Let me ask you something. Have you ever had somebody give you a gift, and it's the exact gift they were hoping to get? You like that? It's like, oh, thanks. I'll hold on to it and re-gift it to you later, <laughs> right? How does it make you feel when somebody gives you a gift that you know they'd love to receive? Does it make you feel maybe a little unknown? Does it hurt a little bit? Maybe even a little bit like betrayal. Like of all people, you should know me. Of all people, you should, if you would just ask, you would find out what I want. If you would just listen, you would know what, what would make me. Some of you are like, dude, you were totally talking about the fight we had last night. Right? Because we do this all the time. We make assumptions about people, and it gets the way of our seeing people. We are to study, which means we need to be humble enough to ask questions. We need to be humble enough to learn. We need to assume that we don't know. And in that assumption, it gives us the humility to see and to listen. There are people in our community that are not like you that you don't know how to love until you learn that, to listen to them. Married folks, there are a lot of singles in our community. You need to know how to love them. You're like, well, dude, I was single once. <laughs> Great. Does that mean you know what life is like as a single in your mid-30s or your mid-40s? Does that mean you know what it's like to come home to an empty house for years after years after years. Really, you think you already know everything about singleness just because you were single at one time? You need to be humble enough to see the people around you, to stop assuming what their experience is. Well, they just have all this freedom. They get to have fun all the time. They just get to do whatever they want. Those are your assumptions placed on them. Those are not the realities of their experience. And what ends up happening is it blocks you from loving them and it blocks you from being able to provoke them to love because they feel unknown by you. Your assumptions get in the way of your seeing. And they can't be known by you because you keep putting this false thing on them and dealing with them and talking to them and relating to them without actually knowing them. Singles, you do the same thing to married people. You can't just assume 
that you know what the married experience is like because, because you know, they have people around all the time. Well, they're never lonely. They get to have people around all the time. They get to, I'll tell you what, there's few things more isolating and lonely than being the parent of young children. But you're not going to know that until you ask. You're not going to know what it's like uh, for, for a young parent to lock themselves in the restroom in tears, in loneliness, and in isolation until you actually humble yourself and ask them about it and learn about them. Don't allow your assumptions to block you from actually seeing people. There, there are people around you who have a different experience from you, a different background from you, a different, a different and, and you're not going to know them unless you determine to know them, unless you humble your heart to know them, unless you ask questions about them. You have people that are coming from a different realm of the political spectrum. Instead of seeing them as enemies to be defeated, see them as brothers and sisters in Christ to be understood and loved. Find out why they would vote for somebody you could never imagine voting for. Find out why those issues are so important to them. Find out why, what it is that, that lights them up, right? Don't, don't just put a blanket assumption on them and act like you already know them. There are people that come from different socioeconomic backgrounds from you. Just because somebody has more money than you, don't assume that everything in their life is good. They get to have everything they want. They're so happy, and, and because they've got what you want. And those of you who have more money, don't look at somebody who is in poverty or struggling with money and assume they're lazy or irresponsible. Don't put your blanket assumptions on people. Get to know people. Ask questions about people. Learn about their experience. Learn about their background. Learn about what makes them tick. You can't love them unless you see them. And you can't see them unless you allow them to reveal themselves to you. You have people that are coming from different gender backgrounds. Right? Don't assume you know what their experience is. Right, guys? Don't mansplaining. We all love that thing, right? Yeah. I'll tell you what your experience is because I already know I'm a man, right? Well, there's also womansplaining, right? Women already know everything they need to know about men. Here's the thing. There are differences in the genders, and there are differences in our experiences, and we're not going to know what those differences are until we're humble enough to actually ask questions and listen, until we're actually willing to, to allow ourselves to see life from their perspective, which is a different perspective from ours. Right? We've got people that have different sexual orientation. You stop putting your assumptions on them. Stop alienating them and dehumanizing them, but not allowing them to have their own voice. You need to find out who they are and love them. That's the call of the gospel. What is your experience? What is, what is, how do you see this? How do you approach this? Why do you think this way? How can I learn to love you and provoke you to love and good works? gospel community is going to be incredibly challenging because it's not just about showing up on a Sunday morning and listening to a sermon and then going home to your safe little world where you're never challenged and you don't have to learn anything. The gospel calls us to something much more radical and much more fulfilling than that. Because listen, it is in learning to love others that I learn how to be loved. It is in learning how to provoke others to love and good deeds that I learn how to be provoked to love and good deeds. It is in moving into the community of faith who is undone by grace and remade in love 
That I learn what it means in Christ to be part of the body of Christ, transformed by the grace of God that flows through the veins of the body. It's going to be hard, which is why some of us are going to be tempted to neglect it, right? Look at the end of the verse there. We are not to neglect the meeting together, as is the habit of some. I mean, why in the world would we neglect meeting with people who challenge us? Why would we neglect meeting with people who, who ask us difficult questions? Why would we neglect meeting with people who, who, who just kind of sometimes annoy us? All right, so even in the early church, right, even in first century, they were tempted to be like, man, the church is so screwed up, I am done with this. Bunch of broken people. I like Jesus, but Christians, ah, right? All right, listen. Don't pridefully close your heart to the community of the church. Yeah, we're jacked up. Yeah, there's a lot of brokenness. People are going to say stupid things. People are going to make wrong assumptions. People are going to be racially insensitive. People are going to be socially insensitive. People are going to be, they're going to be insensitive to your pain. They're going to, it's going to happen. But listen, we don't show up to church primarily, primarily to be encouraged. That's a consumer mentality. That makes it all about me. I show up in community primarily to encourage. Right? The command isn't, um, let us consider how others can stir us up to love and good works. You spend a lot of time, I would say, considering that, by the way. Most of us do. We know what we want people to do for us. We know what we want them to say to us. We know, and we really resent them when they don't do it. But that's not, the, the goal here is not increased self-focus. It is increased others' focus because it is in meeting the needs of others my needs are met. It is in loving others that I learn how to be loved. We are to focus on growing. That's why we can't forsake the gathering of ourselves, of the giving of ourselves to Christian community. We need others. We were designed to be a body, not isolated units. And we need to do this all the more as you see the day drawing near. This would be the day of Christ's coming. This would be the period at the end of the sentence. This is the second advent. This is when our Savior comes back as our hero, and that day is drawing near. Jesus is coming back. That truth should be the light that helps us navigate every choice. That truth should be the light that helps us navigate the difficulties of actually living this stuff out because the day is approaching the day of our hope, the day of our longing, the day that will set right everything that's been set wrong, the day in which every tear will be wiped away, the day of restoration is coming. We should be living in light of that. Otherwise, we're going to live in light of just today, which is a really a short-sighted way of living life. And Lamont <laughs> said rather profoundly, 100 years from now, all new people, you ever thought about that? 100 years from now, all new people, all the drama, all the stuff we're so concerned about, all the stuff we're wrapped up in, 100 years from now, all new people. You know what we're going to be in 100 years from now? In the presence of Christ. What's going to matter to you 100 years from now? As you stand in the glory of your Savior, I guarantee you it's not whether or not you humiliated your, biblical, your, your political opponent on, on Facebook. Um, it's not whether or not you had enough money to... It, in fact, much of what we take pride in today will be 
our shame then and thank God for the grace of God because the grace of God will even remove that shame. But living in the light, the day is approaching. There is an urgency. Because these things are true, because we have a freshly slain and living way into the very presence of God and a priest who brings us in. Let us look back and draw near. Let us look forward and be ignited in hope and let us look around and learn how to love because this is the outworking of grace. All right, I'm gonna close this in a word of prayer and um, we're gonna share communion, uh, but we'll do that in a moment. Let me pray for us and we'll go into a time of response. Father, we thank you that you are a God of, of, of covenant faithfulness. That you have given your word by way of a promise that you will redeem and restore, that you will open up a way back into the presence of shalom, the, the goodness, the fullness, and the flourishing of life, that, that, that you love us in spite of our insane determination to compete with you instead of rely on you, to do for ourselves what only you can do. Man, I am amazed, Lord, by your humility that even though we are so pridefully headstrong, you come alongside us in love and in gentleness and invite us through this freshly slain and living way, through this person of Christ to be loved and in being loved to be transformed. Father, will you break our hearts with this this morning? Will you open our hearts to your love this morning? Will you humble our pride? Will you quiet our fear? Will, will you give us the courage to set aside our false pretenses and our false fronts, our need to impress and to perform? Will you allow us to come in the humility of need and in that place of need to be covered by the glory of your grace? Lord, will you give us a heart to respond this morning? Because it's in responding that we are set free. You guys take a few minutes and pray. We'll share communion in a moment.